Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, hello ladies hello. and gentlemen, Zach. Singular gentleman. There's three of us here at the AWD studios today. A special guest star. <laughs> a very special pop guest. in. And that is the mouse that now lives in my apartment. I'm excited to see the mouse. As you know, I'm an animal lover. I used to have mice. Okay, I need you to like see him and like lovingly scoop him up and like lob him onto the street. He's been here for a while now. So when I first saw him, I'm really scared of mice. I'm scared of the concept of a mouse. Yeah, I'm scared of rats. Yeah, rats are foul. I think I've told you this story before, but this is a friend of a friend, but I believe it, was in Town Hall Station in Sydney and a rat fell on her head. <laughs> I would literally be like, that's it. Like, I would jump in front of the next yes, train. Yes, I would literally yes, be like, I'd be like, house of cards. I would be so embarrassed if anyone ever saw that. In So Town Hall before you moved to Sydney used to be like truly foul. It is so and disgusting. still foul. It had like a makeover before you got there. It used to be like the depths of hell and rats would just run along those like runners at the top. So yeah, like I do believe it's true. And she just felt like a hit <laughs> on her head and then like just sort of scurry off. And they're like big industrial sized rats. They're so disgusting. What is that? A bee. What? Oh my God, a bee. Is it a tiny bee? <laughs> We're like at the zoo. We're literally at the zoo. What the fuck is that? I'm sick of animals. That's what's so foul about New York. Rats are fucking everywhere. My dad was telling me that my grandfather, who was working on like something in construction in like a sewerage pipe once, was in a jumpsuit. A rat ran up the leg of his jumpsuit. Can you imagine? So in those, the context of those stories, my little mouse is not so <laughs> bad. Mouse. When I saw him, he didn't even scurry. He like slowly sauntered across the room. And I was like, is that a mouse? And then I. He's like, morning, Grace. <laughs> Hello. That's what he does. He's like too friendly. He's like too 
nonchalant. Yeah, too comfortable. He's lived here a while. I panicked and jumped on. I think he literally walked through the front door, like under this gap <laughs> in the front door. It's so weird. I jumped on the coffee table and was like screeching. He's like, ah, podcast recording day is a yes, is it a Wednesday? Excuse me. I'll be <laughs> out in a I'll let myself out. <laughs> G&Ts. But he's, we thought he was gone because I left a trap out for him, a humane trap, I'll have you all know. And he just didn't take the bait. So I thought he was gone. I don't know where he's been. And then he popped up in our neighbor's apartment and now he's back down here. Yeah, pop, like upstairs. Eh? Upstairs. I don't know how he's traveling. And like, then the neighbor was like, I think my mouse, your mouse is at my house. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> you need to take him home. So this morning I was like sitting and working and he just like, yeah, walked out into the living room and then literally saw me and walked back into the kitchen. I hope he makes an appearance while we're recording. That'll be really funny. I want you to sort him out because I don't know what to do I I am quite I don't want to be sexist but quite manly (laughs) about these things (laughs) always in my relationships I'd be like the one fucking like doing all the hard work even now if we move the bed this is like obviously not animal related but if we move the bed into the lounge hungover like fully pull the the bed in I'm the one that has to carry it because I'm the strong one (laughs) so yeah I'll get the mouse yeah, so yeah, I'm hoping he comes out because of that. I just don't want him around. He stresses me out. He gives me a fright every time I see him and mm. I just want him gone, but I don't want to kill him. Yeah, I hope he comes out when we're doing our jade. Yep. That'd be cute. Our Patreon. I kind of like him. When he comes out, I'm frightened of them. When he goes, I miss him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had all those pit mice. Remember I told you about Snowy? My white mouse that died when I was like away staying at my friend's house for the weekend. And Donna got a replacement. And I came home and mum was just like standing in the kitchen with a glass of wine, acting really casual, not saying anything. And I came out and was like, who the fuck is this? This is not. actually knew. Well, yeah, I was like, this isn't my mouse. And mum was like, oh, fuck. She'd just like gone to the pet shop, bought another white mouse. Obviously, you would just think that would be fine. (laughs) Like, this is the thing about children that I've realized is like parents don't know how dumb they are. Like, you're just trying and yeah. seeing you know what yeah. I mean you just can't tell with kids what they're like absorbing or what they understand yeah mum was just like any old white mouse it probably looked completely different <laughs> I was like this isn't snowy like screaming what happened to him I have he no idea died, I can't remember I think he just died <laughs> anyway um so the girlies went wild for our Met Gala red carpet reviews they which really did all went down in our close friends yesterday and the night before I, I didn't even realize the Met Gala was on and I got into bed and was about to go to sleep where I was about to read my Sally Rooney book hence us both not finishing it this week mm-hmm. and pushing the review to next week because of the stupid Met yeah. and I went to turn my phone off and then saw all these red carpet grams on Instagram and I was like oh my god I'm not even gonna be able to sleep yeah, it was like Christmas. I was like, I can't believe because we're normally in Australia and you're watching it come through live in real time. And this was the first Met Gala we've been here, so we had to sleep and wake up and see it. Yeah. It was very exciting. We're going to do like a full breakdown review of all of the looks, outfits, moments, JLo and Ben Affleck pashing in masks, etc. Timothy Chalamet transitioning to being Jare. Yeah, that lots of interesting. Lots to talk yeah. about. That's going to go down on Patreon, but we are going to give you girlies 
some some tidbits later on. What have you been consuming this week? I watched the Netflix series about 9-11. Oh, yeah. Because it was the 20th anniversary a few days ago. Um, Is, did that series come out because of that? Is it new? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's new. Yeah. And it's um, it's really great. It's it, it like covers, especially in light of all the Afghanistan stuff, it basically goes back through you know, 9-11 as it happened in real time, which we all know it, but just like re-watching it, you just, it's still like to this day, you just watch it and you're like, I cannot believe that this actually happened. I know. Um, and I guess we were young, so we didn't obviously comprehend like how chaotic it would have been to be our age watching this happen in New York and just having no idea like what was going to happen next, the extent of it. I remember stuff. Uh, like waking up and what coming out and mum was just glued to the TV and she was just like, there's probably, this is probably going to kickstart World War Three. And I was like, what the fuck? The opposite of what you should say to a child. I know, no, but then I was such a kid that I like went to school and I remember I was like running around the playground being like, oh my God, World War Three. Anyway, it's like get a cookie. Like, it's just, you're so young. You just don't really know. You just don't understand. Yeah. I don't really remember that much of like how we talked about it mm. at school either. But then it goes back into the whole like, history of the conflict in Af- in Afghanistan and the history of Al-Qaeda and how those things all came together and, like, the way the government responded and how that's led to the war on terror and the war in Iraq. Like, it's, it's – it's, for me, who doesn't understand that much about that stuff, it was, like, very insightful. Yeah, the Adam Curtis – I can't remember which one, but one of his documentaries really, like, delves super deep into the Middle East conflict. It's so I, interesting. I'd love to watch that, actually. I yeah. find it so fascinating. I think – we're like so guilty in the West of lumping the Middle East into this like singular category when it's mm. just this incredibly complicated ecosystem of different countries. And the US intervention there has just been, it was just so half baked. Like they interviewed this guy whose job it was to back the sort of Afghani groups against the Russian invasion, Soviet invasion in the 80s. And he just indiscriminately, like, threw money at them. He had a billion dollars a year in the 80s, which I don't even know how much that would be now. Oh, my God. And he obviously had, like, absolutely no understanding of the nuances of, like, these different tribes, how they work together, how fundamentalism played into it, who should be getting, like, you know, a contingency plan for once they left of who should be ruling Afghanistan in terms of the treatment of women or the treatment of children or any of that stuff. They just threw money at anyone that was fighting against the Russians and then fucked off and it just created this vacuum for, like, all the chaos that's happened since. Yeah, so it's really fascinating. And then, like, just learning about Bin Laden, I sent you a text saying that I didn't realise Bin Laden was so hot when he was young. Really good looking. And then someone replied to our close friends being like, guys, this is like saying Gaddafi's hot. And I'm like, Gaddafi's also hot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like Ted Bundy. Yeah. Ted Bundy's hot doesn't not make him a serial killer. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Our podcast in a nutshell. But it's relevant and not relevant. I think, I don't think it's inappropriate to say that someone it's like stalin was hot no. it's, i think it's, it's i yeah. think it's i think it's appropriate we're not saying we want to bus him no <laughs> wouldn't bus would you bus no no um without content like yeah if you didn't know if i didn't know he was osama <laughs> yes, Martin, of course would bus yeah he was really cute i think it's relevant in the ted like the ted bundy conversation is so interesting because you just trust good looking people that's why yeah. Again, and, back to incels. Back to incels. Yeah. And it's like with Bin Laden, it 100% was a part of his 
charisma and charm and ability to like a his ability to get followers and b his ability to like hoodwink the western press for so long i think because he was western educated not putting Jesus in the same category, but that's how he got probably quite a few followers. Yeah. Rugged well, I carpenter. Well, like a modern rendition of what Jesus actually looked like, and I was like, mm. What, not hot? <laughs> no, he looks like a like a beast. Hmm. Hmm. I'm sure that's not what he actually looked like. But, yeah, Bin Laden was, like, kind of – he wasn't courted by the international press, but because he went to – you know, came from a very wealthy family, was educated in England, was quite kind of westernized and – was like tall, good looking, like whatever. I think that meant that people didn't. There was a lot of media narrative they show that was kind of quick to showcase him as just like a financier who had no kind of dog in the fight in terms of the political things or the jihad or anything. And I think he slipped by under the West radar for a long time because of a lot of those things. Mm. So it is kind of relevant. But it's really fascinating to see the lens through which he got so many followers because like everything we've talked about, it just has a kernel of truth. It's basically, he said to people, you know, the Middle East has all of these resources that a superpower wants to pillage like oil and gas reserves and everything. And we need to be preemptively striking against them. So they never feel like they can do that. And it's like, obviously the history of like colonialism and imperialism means that that's true Mm. so it would be very easy to get people on board thinking that that's a reality yeah but how much he like it's just like that attack obviously it was just like the most horrendous fucking like re-watching survivors talk about it and stuff it's just unbelievable i know but then i think obviously it's unbelievable and the scope of it is crazy being able to hijack two planes and crash them into the world yeah well yeah and crash those into the world trade center is crazy but then at the same time we think it's so wild because it's just it's a western thing that never happens whereas in the middle east stuff like that yeah even just how the oh i've fully forgotten the name of the building but the building that al jazeera and all the foreign press were in in the gaza strip being bombed that's fucking crazy i was listening to a podcast about that and that happened a couple of months ago Mm -hmm. and i was listening to a podcast about that the other day where israel actually called them called the building owners and were like we're gonna bomb the building in an hour and evacuated everyone out and i was listening to people live on the call like being evacuated and evacuated so no one actually well i don't know if anyone died but they had evacuated the whole building when Mm -hmm. they bombed that yeah which is so interesting but just yeah i was i was listening to another podcast episode this morning actually just by chance again on today in focus which just has such good podcasts and it was a conversation about islamophobia in the uk since 9 11 Mm. because i was seeing obviously heaps of posts about 9 11 talking about the people who died and the and the survivors and the family members and kind of forgotten this i watched the documentary but that plane was headed for the capitol building and the people on board discovered through talking to loved ones on the phone the twin tower attacks at the hijacking because i think everyone thought the hijacked planes were just going to do the normal hijacked plane thing which is like land and then the terrorists will negotiate with government officials no one it didn't cross anyone's mind that they would crash into targets so the people of united 93 found out and stormed the cockpit and and crashed the plane so it wouldn't crash into a target so no one else would die Mm. so sad and so like brave and amazing yeah yeah obviously there were so many conversations about that which is great but then at the same time i saw a few people posting the other victims of 9-11 and Mm. that's all of the muslims and just people in the middle east whose lives were complete people from the middle east or brown people Mm. literally just brown people whose lives were changed 
following 9-11 forever. Mm-hmm. And this podcast is really interesting because it talks to two different a, – a black Nigerian British Muslim guy and a brown Muslim woman speaking about how much their lives changed since 9-11, how much it impacted their families. And, yeah, it's just it's just like you forget that that one event changed the entire world. Yeah, even for my partner, Zach, he's a Syrian. And, you know, I think there was a lot of prejudice against people. For example, that had like kind of Muslim-derived names, so he didn't have that certain type of discrimination. But he really, I think, faced a lot of, as a kid, a lot of fucking shit for being of Middle Eastern descent after Mm. 9-11 happened and this whole thing where, you know, Middle Eastern terrorists became, like, number one enemies in all Hollywood movies and there was just such a, like, awful stigma placed around that for so long. But even now, even today, so this guy was speaking and he was saying that with the 20th anniversary looming, he was getting texts from scared people who didn't want to leave the house on that day because they were worried about being attacked. Even the way they were talking about it in the documentary when they talk about going to war, they interview the only congresswoman who voted against the military intervention or whatever after 9-11. And she was like, I think what happened here is is despicable and I'm as angry and sad and grieving and confused and everything as everyone else. But this is a, a terrorist group that is – you know, it's operating out of Afghanistan, but the idea that we're going to now declare war on this entire country and dedicate all of the, it, it doesn't really make sense outside of the context of like, we just want revenge on yeah. brown people now. Yeah. Like it was just very, or we like, want to show. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of it was just showing Americans that something was happening. Exactly. And I, I get it. Like I get you yeah. know, that thing, but it was, it's a really interesting documentary. I think people should watch it. Yeah, I'm really, really definitely going to watch that. Might watch it tonight. Mm-hmm. Oh, also off the back of us speaking last week about the Everybody Knows podcast in Australia, which is examining why the Me Too movement didn't ever take off and as well as accusations of uh, workplace misconduct at Sony and just the music industry as a whole. Refinery29 Australia is actually doing this really cool initiative called Fired Up. So... Refinery29 only launched in Australia a few months ago. And this is really cool because basically what they're doing is they're addressing the Me Too movement, especially workplace sexual harassment and misconduct head on, which is really cool. They put some stats in their piece about it, which is quite horrific. So almost two in five women in Australia had experienced sexual harassment at work in the past five years. Young people, people with a disability, LGBTQI+, and Aboriginal people, Indigenous Australians, were far more likely to have experienced workplace sexual harassment. And as part of this, they are raising money for the Northern Territory Territories <laughs> Working Women's Centre, which is a community-based non-profit organisation supporting women through gender discrimination, sexual harassment, and assault in the workplace. So on their website there's a petition you can sign. They're petitioning the government to stop that shutting down, which is very cool. Amazing. Yes, everyone's sign. Things are happening. Things are happening. On to shrooms. Yeah, let's talk about shrooms. Yeah, on to shrooms. So (laughs) (laughs) we did just say that. Topic shrooms. Topic shrooms. There was a really interesting podcast app about 
the kind of way scientists and researchers have been studying using psychedelics as a cure for depression. They talked about psilocybin, which is a thing found in mushrooms. What is it? A like thing found in mushrooms. <laughs> and as well as MDMA and what else? That's about it, ecstasy? really. I find that a little hard to believe. Well, I think I think that they call it the same thing. Like right. MD, like yeah. ecstasy is MDMA, but the ecstasy we got yes. in Australia and New Zealand was like a was fucking what, what a Mercedes Benz pill, yes. pink pill with yeah, made of um, like rat made of poison sugar and rat sugar poison, and yeah, like a yeah, totally. No, I find this so interesting because I guess I mean. The conversation about like psychedelics being used to help mental illness isn't particularly new, but I think I, I found this podcast really interesting because I didn't realize how close they were to actually turning it into a proper FDA approved product that can be used worldwide by psychologists. And there is like, one already yeah. in the UK, right? There's one clinic that's been authorized to use it. Yes, but they're a research clinic, right? So oh, they're right. still Sorry. Like, getting yeah. all the research thing. But still, like, the fact the government's letting them test on mm. people. Mm. And they were saying in the uh, the podcast that there's actually no real intense opposition to it. It's more just making sure that it's being done in a safe way. Because mm-hmm. as they spoke, they were saying, you know, MDMA used without the therapy is not going to heal trauma or, or cure depression or, or have any effect like that. It's It's – paired with the therapy that it's going to actually change something yeah Um, which and i think it's so like the science of it makes sense in how they explained it which is basically like when these drugs go into your system they attack your serotonin receptors or whatever so like the old-fashioned thing is obviously you do like a bunch of mdma on friday when you're young your serotonin receptors bounce back so your come down is not that high and then over years of use and abuse it becomes harder and harder for like brain to bounce back but the idea that when that is done in a you know restrained scientifically judged way that it can actually permanently change the wiring of your brain and its ability to receive or take in serotonin makes so much sense yeah and also they were saying that for people who especially survivors of trauma they can find it really hard to trust their psychologists and when you're given drugs such as MDMA or psilocybin, which I think just means mushrooms, essentially, those barriers come down so much easier and you're so much more likely to open up and to trust. I think for so many people, it would take years and years and years of therapy to get to a place where they're actually in a position to start working through their traumas properly because you're obviously taking so long to trust someone and taking so long to open up properly. They were saying cognitive behavioral therapy has been proven to be a great way of helping people deal with trauma but generally like it's most effective when someone has had one traumatic incident but for people whose whole lives have been filled with trauma or who can't pinpoint a specific incident because it's you know been like years of abuse or or living in a situation where you are being traumatized all the time it's it's much harder to pinpoint it's much harder for cognitive behavioral therapy to be effective whereas this is when the psychedelics are really effective which is really interesting because it's like rewiring your brain instead of focusing on a specific incident and and teaching you how to get over that yeah a hundred percent I so like a friend of mine who I you know struggled with I would say like a long-term but like lower level form of depression which you've written about recently but we'll wait till yeah (laughs) 
we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna comes talk out. about it yeah but I, I she you know had been going to therapy for years and was kind of like fine and functioning and like whatever and then had an experience with mushrooms that she said was like incredibly incredibly like life-changing almost not taking it as a psychologist thing or whatever but just taking it recreationally with friends in like a really nice environment and had this like really really intense psychological breakthrough that like changed her life Mm. almost by accident i can even say for me like the first time i did mdma I think it did something to my brain. My brain understanding that I had the capacity to feel this happy, I think permanently did something to me that was like quite life-changing for me. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have friends in the UK who are, I'm pretty sure this is the word. I haven't actually looked it up. I'm just talking from them speaking to me at a dinner party forever ago, a shamas, which is when you use mushrooms as a form of therapy. Mm. So one of my friends is training to be one. So he'll fully go and like meet up with the Sharma and then they take mushrooms and they like learn how to use it as a, th- as a therapeutic thing. And they're always saying how amazing and incredibly beneficial it is. I think for me doing that, cause I, I would be super interested in this. They also said one of the studies, they studied a bunch of people and like half of them were put on normal antidepressants and half of them were put on psilocybin and the results overwhelmingly for the people who were put on psilocybin felt better in the long term and didn't need to go back on any form of antidepressants, whereas the people who were on the normal prescribed antidepressants kind of relapsed into their mental health issues and needed to go back on, which is, like, so interesting. Really interesting because I even know just, like, colloquially antidepressants work for a lot of people, but there are a lot of people that they don't work for and it can sometimes cause a longer term reliance or like, you know, feelings of numbness, numbness for long periods of time, which people find really scary. So I think this isn't about like, you know, negging on antidepressants or saying that people should go out and smash a handful of pingers. No, it's kind of the opposite because that won't work. That won't work. And obviously like, yeah long-term use of like a lot of these drugs because they're not used in a therapeutic way is actually really detrimental to your mental health Mm -hmm. so yeah i just think this idea of them like getting rid of this like stigma around class a drugs and acting like every class a drug is like the same situation and saying no we're going to look at the properties in these specific psychedelics and start looking at like ways that they can actually help people it just feels very refreshing and exciting yeah well i think they said something that MDMA wasn't actually illegal until Reagan declared yeah. the war on drugs, and that was to right. do with crack cocaine. And so they ended up making these drugs illegal. And same with LSD, right? Like you read about Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd and like all of these people in like the 60s in the UK and the US who created all this amazing music. It was like so tied to psychedelic culture. Mm. It unleashed the most amazing amount of like creativity, and then it was made illegal because of – yeah, similar like hardcore drug thing laws, which is not to say again that there's no downsides to it. I still can't believe where we're at in terms of drug reform or drug legalization reform. I know. Even the thing in New Zealand recently. Yeah, how cannabis didn't pass as being legal. Yeah, I know. It is quite crazy. It's just very backwards. And I think it's just because people are scared and they don't understand. And I even loved how this one professor said her teenage son or or young 20s son came home to her and said, I went to a festival over the weekend and I took mushrooms. And and he said, it was the first time I felt just 
like myself or just free and just out of your own head. And I think when you are a person that struggles with severe anxiety or um, social anxiety or depression, you can get so stuck in your own head that these drugs can just help you forget about that barrier to having fun. So acid, LSD, this is going to sound like a pro druggy podcast, which again, it's not. But when taken in like really small doses, again, as you say, it can make you super creative, but it also just make, it just makes you lose that. You just laugh. You just have fun and you laugh and you're carefree. And she said that instead of freaking out about her son saying that, she spoke to him about it. And then now she's, she said that she's one of these really conservative kind of scientists. And now she's at the forefront of this movement to kind of, test psychedelics as a cure for depression it's it's so interesting it's very nine perfect strangers but uh, yes you're right very nine perfect strangers oh and very goop because they did the mushroom therapy thing on goop that's right and ayahuasca obviously is is massive i feel as if i am too much of a pussy to do it but i would love to do it i've read some amazing pieces about people doing ayahuasca and basically going through like 10 years of grieving therapy and 72 crazy hours of vomiting and crying and feeling nuts and then coming out of it feeling like a different person i had dinner with a guy when i first moved to london who'd just done it and he had been vomiting for two days mad you vomit out all your traumas they say very interesting i feel (laughs) yeah the patreon grace and izzy do Oh my God. I would be, I would 100% do the mushroom or the MDMA therapy. Yeah. But I I would, it's funny because my friend is a charmer. So I'm sure if I hit him up, he obviously it's not legal, but he would probably do it with me. But I'd be too scared to do it with someone I know. I'd just be crying about Frankie leaving my cat in Sydney and he'd just be like, wow. (laughs) I know. No, it's really, really interesting. On to Zimet Gala, what you've all been waiting for. Yes. Okay, so we're going to do a really big breakdown in Jare, which is what we call our Patreon app. But who were your favorites? I don't even know who mine were. Do you want to go first? Should we go tit for tat? I feel like ours are very similar. Very similar. Okay, obviously we both loved Dan Levy. Yeah. I mean, the man could do anything with his stupid, cute smile and I would love him. But 
he just really understood the assignment. Mm-hmm. Him and Loewe was just gorgeous. You said something to me about the art he was wearing on his. Yeah, I just read this that Jonathan Anderson uh, used artwork from queer activists from the AIDS era. However, I have not got a name. Um, yeah, loved Dan, loved trying to think of who else. I actually really loved Lords. I loved Troy Sivan. Understated, but great. We loved- obviously both love we're, we're not doing too many, remember? We were doing three. We've done about five. Okay, I'm done shutting up now. <laughs> I loved we both loved, obviously. Zoe Kravitz and mm-hmm. Saint Laurent. Insane. Um, and who's the last one? I mean, this is a given, but, and we'll talk about it more later, Rihanna and ASAP Rocky. Yeah, we'll go into that because I feel like that was a bit divisive to mm. people. Okay. And then <laughs> eating on the floor. I'm so sorry. I can't. I love this cookie so much. Okay. <laughs> this is really shitty peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that bee's gone. I keep thinking about it. You guys, I'm obsessed with chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. Can't stop thinking about them all the time. So we just had to go to Gail's, which is a really just chain cafe <laughs> that I Shoogie fucking chain. love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and got a chocolate chip cookie and there was none on the counter. And I almost cried. Yeah, yeah. And this girl brought out like a whole tray from the back and it all was well. Jesus was smiling down on Izzy today. Okay, so, yeah, we're going to do a deep dive on probably every single look from the Met Gala on the Patreon app. But now to talk about the biggest talking point, AOC appeared at the Met Gala. She wore a gown by Brother Veli's, Aurora James, and it was a white strapless gown. I'm sure everyone's seen it, kind of bridal-ish, and it had tacks the rich written on the back in, according to an article I just read, a Pantone red shade called Beheaded Capitalist. <laughs> My first reaction was an eye roll. Yeah, which is funny because I think a lot of people's first reaction was amazing. Right. I, I think in the circles we kind of move in, there was an eye roll, but I think the majority of people thought, fuck yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I flip-flopped a lot and read a lot and, yeah, my opinion's kind of now somewhere balanced between both sides. But I guess my first reaction was, why is she at the Met Gala? It's the complete encompassment of everything she should be the opposite of. It's ostentatious wealth. It's the most kind of capitalist... (laughs) Mm. you know, moneyed celebration of obnoxious, extravagant spending. It has undertones of the, you know, Marie Antoinette era of French aristocracy being completely tone deaf to the rest of the country. It was happening at a time where, you know, there's mass unemployment, mass economic insecurity. You're still kind of meant to be wearing a mask and no one was wearing a mask. All the kind of weight staff people in all of the Met Gala pictures were in masks and all the celebrities were just brazenly going around in these half a million dollar outfits to a $30,000 a head event. So it just felt a bit, I guess the nature of the gown itself, it just 
it, it felt more like it fit in with the Met Gala than it was making a statement about the Met Gala being fucked. But I get that that was the point of what she was doing. I think my initial reaction was similar to you. And I kind of, it was just that thing of putting a slogan on an outfit just does nothing to change anything. And I was just like, okay, so you're going to, you're going to write tax. Yeah, exactly. You're going to write tax the rich on your top and then go to a $35,000 huge ball with all of these celebrities and end up and like, obviously have just a really fun night and eat all the food and drink all the drinks and chat to all the celebrities. It just felt a bit like virtue signaling. Yeah. And I think most of the celebrities there, I get other people apart from the celebrities goes to the Met Gala, but most celebrities that go to the Met Gala are left-leaning, liberal, Hollywood or fashion or media types who agree with taxing the rich. So I don't think it would have made a single person there feel uncomfortable to see that. I think every celebrity that saw her would have said, oh, my God, I love you. Yes, queen, I love your dress. You know what I mean? It was. It, it, I don't feel as if she went into this event and wore something or did something that would have made the attendees feel extremely uncomfortable so in that sense, it felt more like a PR moment for her, mm. which is fine, than it was about trying to make the wealthy elites feel uncomfortable. Yeah, which is what people were kind of praising about it. But then I think the, yeah, the more we both looked into it, I feel less annoyed. So basically, I think the point of it was that we're all having a conversation about it, mm-hmm. which we are. But I don't know if we're actually having a conversation about taxing the rich though as much as we are having a conversation about AOC but she also did point out that New York City elected officials are regularly invited to and regularly attend the Met due to our responsibilities in overseeing our city's cultural institutions that serve the public I was one of several in attendance and the dress is borrowed It was also her taking Aurora James, the two working class women of colour. Aurora James's uh, label was started in a flea market in Brooklyn. It was really cool. While we're on this topic, before I forget, do you know Lewis Hamilton bought an entire table and took along black designers? Oh, amazing. He's such a fucking gem. Yeah. (laughs) I love that that boy. Wow. That's some serious cash as well. Yeah. He would be filthy rich. 35, yeah madness filthy rich something that really changed my perspective on this was the cuts piece that was kind of saying she knows exactly what she's doing and she knew exactly what she was doing with this and she knew what the backlash would be aoc knew what the backlash would be before she even went out and this was what she's done consistently through her career with the vanity fair cover wearing the gabriella hurst and the you know vogue makeup routine videos and all of these things they're calculated pr moves to get people talking about her in a mainstream way, which then brings her version of politics into the mainstream, which forces the Democratic Party to move its policies further and further to the left. Mm. So from that perspective, it's the criticism against her, I think, is that she's PRing herself in order to do that and that it seems like she's fame-hungry or obsessed with, you know, PR or people loving her. But I think the flip side of that is that she knows it's a really, really effective way to get these policies that she genuinely does advocate for in her role as a congressperson 
into mainstream public conversation in a very serious, meaningful way to the point where now turning tax the rich into such a a boring, banal slogan that people are kind of like, okay, is kind of an achievement, right? Even though I do think a lot of people agree with it, I think getting people to think about taxing the ultra wealthy in a very mainstream way is... Or even for it to not be this crazy, yeah, exactly, for it to not be a crazy idea that you've never heard of, for it to be so common that it's just like, yeah, we should just tax the rich. Part of me, and this is where I guess I rub up against it because part of me is like, yeah, everyone just does agree with that. I don't know that she's brought that into the, I think before anyone had ever heard of AOC existing, if you spoke to anyone on a college campus in the last 20 years and said should rich people pay more taxes everyone would have said yeah or even Mm. middle class people who make a whatever living I think that tax cuts for the one percent are not popular I guess it's just bringing people that aren't normally interested in like economic or tax policy into the fold of the conversation is what she's doing which is what you would do standing on the Met Gala red carpet so I do get it people were likening it to My old boy, Mark Fisher, who we've talked about a bunch, his theory of capitalist realism, which as we've spoken about before, is basically saying that the term capitalist realism means we're so kind of entrenched in capitalism that we see no way out. So we can't imagine an alternative to capitalism. So kind of an idea in that is basically that now the idea of anti-capitalism no longer kind of changes or challenges capitalism in any way. The idea of anti-capitalism is so entrenched in us and we all don't like capitalism so much that it kind of reinforces capitalism because we all just think, oh, yeah, we just hate it, but that's just the way things are. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like her going and standing on the red carpet and putting a tax the rich thing on the Met Gala red carpet isn't changing anything. It's kind of like reinforcing it in the way that he says because it, and like kind of like the Pixar film Wally, this is what Mark Fisher uses as an example, is a film about anti-capitalism. It shows the world completely fucked and no humans inhabiting it anymore because we were all so greedy and we're all up in the sky really, really fat and we can't walk because we're so fat. And Pixar will put that out. They know that they're putting out a film about anti-capitalism, but they now want us to like hate it. I don't know. I don't know if I'm explaining it properly no, because but it, it just it, reinforces it's, it's, it's it. It's stoking this. It's capitalism in action because it's recognizing that there's a part of the market that can be advertised to that's interested in this concept. So it waters it down to something just palatable enough and then markets it back to people. So then they think they're engaging with this genuinely subversive thing. While buying it. still making Disney richer or whoever richer. And then, yeah. yeah. And with AOC, people were saying it it ends up just – benefiting an individual rather than changing society. Yeah, it did feel to me just kind of inappropriate. I don't know why. Like If I saw Bernie Sanders at the Met Gala, even if it was a, a PMOS or Telfar suit that said tax the rich on the back, I would, I would find that quite naff and I don't think he would ever do that as well. I think it's – the morality of it is slightly confused, I think, because – AOC is someone that I think is courting a certain type of media attention that should be at odds with the ethics that she's spouting. There is nothing more capitalist in the world than Vogue magazine, and I say that as someone that loves it and works for them and, you know, is a capitalist myself. Like it's a a magazine that exists and hinges on 
celebrating wealthy, beautiful people, advertising extremely expensive products to people and hinges on the idea that there is an elite group of people that are better than the rest of us and that by buying into these certain fashion and lifestyle and beauty things, we can aspire to be more like them. Mm. So it's almost like you can't really be half in, half out with that (laughs) morally, you know, which is why I think most politicians just don't really engage. So Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Okay, our final topic is a New Zealand-centric topic. Um, So last week ahead of Māori Language Week, Lord released a surprise album and it's five songs from Solar Power recorded in Te Reo Māori. So for people outside of New Zealand, Te Reo Māori is our Indigenous language. I know that in Australia there are so many different languages that the first people speak. And basically... Tereo was really, really kind of stamped out in New Zealand. Māori kids were punished and beaten if they spoke it at school ever. It was basically something that the white colonizers were trying to completely stamp out of the country. Only one in five New Zealand Māori now can hold a conversation in Tereo. So it's it's really like not common at all for people to be able to speak it fluently. I can't speak it fluently. I studied it at school for a few years when I was like really trying to learn more about my heritage. It was also interesting reading a lot about this because I have always felt really kind of embarrassed, I guess, that I can't speak the language. So it was really interesting to hear perspectives from other Maori who feel the exact same way, but also to hear like that because of the way the colonizers came into the country, so many Maori don't know their heritage and don't know where they're from. And I thought it was kind of, I know that me and a lot of my friends don't know exactly where they're from like I know my tribe and I know the general area but I don't know all that much more about my history it'd be really hard to do a family tree or anything like that so it is a touchy subject and it contains a lot of trauma for a lot of Maori people so when Lord released this my first opinion was that I thought it was really great because for me, anyone embracing Te Reo Māori, it's always a huge point of contention in New Zealand. There's there's still so much racism. We've talked in the, the past about, um, you know, there was a there was a radio station where a guy called up and was being super racist on air, and the host completely engaged with him, and it was just it was just disgusting. Mm-hmm. And now there are still so many times where I don't know Vodafone or, or two degrees or, or a mobile phone station will put something in Tadeo and heaps of customers will say they're going to like switch phone country oh companies God. and like they, they completely like anytime someone speaks Tadeo actually someone spoke it recently on stage at a conference and they like booed her and told her to get off stage Jesus yeah what is going on no it's fucking construction I don't even understand where it is so <laughs> sorry there's like weird construction so yeah Lord releasing this album so just for me reading this, this isn't a common thing for English-speaking New Zealand artists to do to cre- simultaneously create a Tereo language album. No. She's kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to a certain degree pioneering it in that sense. So yeah, so for this, Lord engaged a bunch of really, really esteemed, established Tereo Māori speakers. So she got Dame Hiniwe Mohi, Sir Tomoti Karatu, Hana Meriraiha, and Hemi Kelly. So Dame Hiniwe Mohi actually sung the New Zealand national anthem at the World Cup in London 
was asked to and sang it in Tereo and got home to people protesting, like mm-hmm. so many protests about it. And also Sir Tomoti Karatu is this 84-year-old Māori man who's just like this kind of powerful, quite scary, just staunch leader. <laughs> and Lord went and visited him in Hawke's Bay, where I'm from. Mm. He lives at Waimarama Beach. And he taught at the most prestigious Māori language school for 15 years. So she really did engage the most incredible people and there was an article in the spin-off which spoke to all of these people spoke to lord about the experience and spoke to other maori singers and performers and all of these people said that she really took the utmost care and she really genuinely cares about this and like really wanted to do a good job of it and that she herself says in the piece that she is aware that people were going to say that it's tokenism. She was like, I'm white. However you want to interpret me wanting to engage with our indigenous culture is fair enough. I totally accept that because it is really complicated. This isn't something where I have both feet on the ground. I'm a little bit out of my depth and I'm the first to admit that I'm opening myself up to any response. But she says what would have been worse is to just have been too scared to do it. That to me is sadder and scarier than being attributed any kind of white savior complex. Yeah. So Sir Tomoti Karatu, he said, that he recognises the trauma and shame that is experienced by Māori who can't speak their language and how the use of it by non-Māori may affect them. He sent it firsthand, describing a salient difference in working with Māori artists that can't speak the language and enthusiastic Pākehā, which means white, learners like Lord, which is really like exactly kind of what I was saying, I think. I think a lot of people were just like, oh, there's just a white girl coming in and using our language to sell records or to make herself look better for pr or whatever and and all the proceeds are going to charities but randomly one of them's going to forest and bird which is just like nothing to do with maldives but my grandma would be stoked because she loves the birds reminds me when i had to work selling charity signups for bush heritage australia (laughs) no one wanted a bar of it so yeah there's been a huge conversation around it i do think that it would have probably been less jarring for a lot of maori people in a lot of Polynesians in New Zealand, if Lord had kind of incorporated Te Reo into her vocabulary publicly for ages first, or had been very publicly on this learning journey of learning Te Reo for years. I've never seen her speak it before. I don't know. I don't, I'm not signed up to her random newsletter or anything like that. But for example, Chloe Swarbrick speaks Te Reo all the time. And every conversation she has, she incorporates Te Reo. She's very clearly engages in the indigenous community all the time. And I think if Lord was doing that for years and was very clearly an ally and was very clearly learning, and then this was part of her journey, that probably would have been a bit less jarring. But I think for her, she was like, I just want to delve in head first. And I want to put like so much time and effort into this. And she did like, I was listening to it on the way here. And I think for me, as a Māori who can't speak the language, listening to, obviously there are so many Māori performers and singers out there, but listening to songs that I already know from listening to the Solar Power album and being able to dance along to the beat while hearing someone sing in Tereo was like really joyful. It was like really lovely. Mm. Yeah, I, I can totally see. I don't even think it's two sides like there's a right or wrong side, I guess just like both equally valid discussions about it because uh, there was a piece in the guardian that i read by morgan godfrey but it it was basically talking about how you know having high profile pakiha you know engaging with the language and promoting it on a global level like this will be really genuinely impactful in you know maybe encouraging it to be reintroduced to the curriculum or encouraging young people to go and learn it for the first time or maybe encouraging households 
to begin speaking it with each other again or it just it, it elevates it onto this global level and into this global discussion which feels really important but at the same time I totally understand that it always seems to be the same type of young thin white often woman who is the one who's given a huge round of applause for yeah. doing this yeah. it's it's that kind of thing that we've seen happen a lot in the last 18 months or whatever but I guess the takeaway is it's like Lord said it's better that it happened and that she's muddling through it I guess than than that it didn't happen at all yeah and I think that every Maori person's opinion on this is valid so some people might think completely differently to me and that's valid because they've had different experiences some people will feel super triggered after years of being mocked and physically abused for speaking Māori I was obviously like racially bullied at school for my last name and which is Remy Hana and people were fully beaten if they spoke about it older people so I can understand any kind of view on it but I feel similar to this Guardian piece where basically they said you know if we must wait for the perfect circumstances to sing or speak Tereo Nobody's trauma is triggered. No token is misdetected. We may as well sign the language's death certificate. Basically, it just must be used by both Māori and non-Māori. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. Because if it's just if it's just like Lord Lord doing that would have there there are just so many racists in New Zealand who would be fans of Lord basically, mm-hmm. and her standing up and doing an album in today of Māori and showing that she appreciates the language thinks the language should be used thinks it should be respected would be like a slap in the face to all these horrible racists who follow her and it's like that's a great thing Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm gonna keep listening to and even just me listening to it on the way here it it like helps with your pronunciation and it's just it's great and i'm also gonna seek out and listen to more I think like, like hearing people sing it is great it's such an easy way to ingest the language Mm. so i'm gonna listen to more maori performers might even become one myself become yeah please do some karaoke (laughs) and it's i feel like for me even just like i was very ignorant about a lot of this stuff about tereo yeah good (laughs) including how to say it well yeah you gotta you're supposed to roll your eyes but it's hard tereo 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 yeah so i am really happy as well that we had this conversation because it was very insightful to me so thank you (laughs) Rare you. Rare me. Rare. Rare. Okay, shall we go over to the Patreon? Yes, over on the Patreon. As previously discussed, we are talking all things Met Gala, proper red carpet deep dive, proper deep dive on all the Jare moments, what we think of Kim K, what we think of J-Lo and Ben Affleck passing, what we think of Pete Davidson being hot now, what we think of Frank Ocean's baby, what we Timothy think of... Timothy Chalamet not being hot now. Timothy, yes, race up, Rihanna debut. Et cetera. Et cetera. And that's pretty much everything we're talking about. Yeah. Cool. Bye. 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 My heart can't hold.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.